0: Radio Diaries from PRX's Radiotopia is a podcast featuring first-person diaries, sound portraits, and hidden chapters of history. Their newest series, Hunker Down Diaries, tells stories of people in unexpected circumstances due to the pandemic, like hunkering down in a car, quarantining after the first date, and spending the lockdown in a pizzeria. Subscribe to the Radio Diaries podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Original Podcast. Hey, Love Me listeners. It's Lou with a question for you. What would the news sound like if media were truly diverse? Listen as one reporter investigates stories of race and identity you don't hear elsewhere. Like, what is it like to be an adoptee in the Trump era? Or, how are Portland communities coping one year after the horrific light rail attacks? Download Otherhood, a podcast from PRI. Listen now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get Love
0: Me. When I was a kid, our family dog was a dachshund named Roby. My brother was in fifth grade and I was in kindergarten and and we were home because it was a snow day and, and I went downstairs and my brother was talking to the dog on the couch and I didn't know what he was doing. He was blowing in the dog's ear, and the dog was shaking his head. And I said, uh, what are you doing, Steve? And he said, I'm talking, talking to the dog. And I said, well, what, what are you asking the dog? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm asking Roby if he loves me. And I said, well, what did he say? He said, well, he says he loves me. So I, I kind of let that sink in for a minute, and then, of course... I was hooked, and I said, "Gee, Steve, could you ask Roby if he loves me?" He said, "Sure," and he did, and then he said, "Oh no, no, Roby." And I said, "Well, what did he say?" He says, "Oh, I, I no, I I I can't tell you." And I said, "No, tell me, tell me." And he said, "Well, he said he doesn't love you, Lee." And I said, oh, "And I was really I was crushed," and. I said, well, what do I have to do? Ask him if there's anything I can do. And so he, he whispered some more, and then he said no to the dog. And I, I said, well, what do you say? he says?" say? I can't tell you. It's not okay. And I said, tell me, tell me. And he said, okay. He says, if you, if you kiss him on his ass, he will love you forever. And I said, Okay. That was, that was a no-brainer for me. I mean, one moment of, of, one moment of that act to a forever of, of undying and forever love. So I went over and I proceeded to do exactly what Roby said would be required for him to love me. And my mother came down the stairs precisely at that moment and uh, shrieked. She wasn't sure what, in fact, was going on, although she knew it was bad. She was going to put an end to this kind of stuff right there, right then. So she said to me, that is precisely how you get polio. As for Roby, I don't believe that my display of affection really swayed him in any way. He pretty much ignored me. From CBC,
1: this is Love Me. And I'm Lou. Episode 8, I solemnly swear. I hate making promises. I never do it, because they're just too easy to break. Today's stories are about people trying their best to keep their promises. We start things off with a vow of civic duty.
2: I got into the witness box, and the judge asked me to state my age and my profession. And then she looked at the defense. The defense said, satisfied. And then the prosecution said, satisfied. And then the judge just immediately says, raise your right hand. You're taking the juror's oath. You are juror number 12. And I thought, oh, no. What have I gotten myself into? when you're selected for a jury duty you have to stop everything else that's going on in your life you can't go to work you can't go out of town you are required to be at court every day, all day um, for weeks, sometimes months and depending on the severity of the crimes that you're being asked to adjudicate on you could be sentencing someone to be in jail for the rest of their life but I am an introvert, so what was almost even more scary for me was having to spend eight hours a day with 11 randomly selected strangers. I really like humanity in the abstract. Like I really believe in social justice and collectivism, but I don't want to hang out with people. I would actually have to give myself pep talks on the way to jury duty every day. Often the lawyers would need to speak with the judge without us present, so we'd have to sit around in the jury room. So there was a lot of downtime for us just to inevitably get to know each other. Some of the jurors just had, like, what I would describe as an outside voice that they would use inside this tiny jury room, and it would drive me crazy. Juror number seven was a classic helicopter mom. She had a huge schedule that she laid out every day full of all of her kids' due dates for their assignments. She was constantly on the phone making sure that they were doing their homework, practicing their spelling. And then on the other side of me sat juror number 11, who was very large physically and would take up a lot of space. And his favorite thing to do was to scroll through his phone and read headlines out loud, It just seemed like he liked the sound of his voice. I just wanted to actually, like, slap my hands over my ears and go hide somewhere, but there's nowhere to escape. And then there was this one juror that I found really hard to engage with. Juror number four. She often would come into the jury room with some panicked announcement about something that she had just seen on the quote-unquote news. Like, have you heard that all the Muslims are planning to cancel Christmas? Another time it was, well, that's it, they're just officially throwing open the doors and letting all the refugees in without any security checks. And what really worried me was that some of the other people in the room would kind of nod along in agreement with her, and it really made me concerned about the kind of people that the other jurors were and whether they'd be able to reach a reasonable and logical verdict in this really important decision that we had to make. I wanted to make sure that when we did enter deliberations, these people would listen to me and respect what I had to say. So I tried to stay on everyone's good side. You know, I would engage in those pleasantries every day and say, good morning, how was your night, or have a good weekend. I'd ask Helicopter Mom about her kids and all of those regular polite things that people do. And then one time, the same woman, juror number four, came into the jury room uh, with some new news that um, Doritos were flavored with parts of aborted fetuses. The fate of the defendant and of the justice system was resting in this woman's hands. But for the first time, everyone else in the room just looked at each other and then looked down and were silent. She had like crossed this invisible barrier where everyone else realized how irrational she was. It gave me a bit of hope. The trial was really hard. I can't discuss any of the details of the case, but it was a very seriously violent case. The people that we heard from had some really, really Tough pasts. And I had to hold back tears in the courtroom more than once because I felt empathy for them. But for some reason, it was actually harder in some ways for me to feel empathy for the people that were sitting right next to me in the jury box. But there was one point after many weeks of spending eight hours a day with these people when something shifted. Journer number 11 sat next to me and was always reading the news out loud. One day he was quite late and everyone was annoyed at him. And finally he shows up and he had been late because his grandmother who lives with him had fallen down and he needed to arrange for her to get to the hospital. And I think that was a Friday. And I remember realizing throughout the weekend that I was thinking about him and I was worried about his grandmother. It was a really, really nice feeling to realize, even though they annoyed the hell out of me for most of the day, I cared about what happened in these people's lives. I finally started actually meaning it when I would tell helicopter mom, like, I really hope that your son does well on his Greek test. Like, I really meant it. It was no longer a pleasant tree. Even, Even Doritos lady, with all of her strange, horrible views. I realized I had grown to really care about her. A jury is kind of like a family. You're thrown together with a bunch of people. You don't get to choose who they are. And the fact that I was able to care about each and every one of them, despite all of our differences, made me realize that... When I'm going through life and kind of hating people and being misanthropic, I should be more patient with not just humanity in the abstract, but with actual people. They're just jurors I haven't met yet.
0: Whatever the jury says, remember, you are not a criminal.
1: Has the jury reached a verdict? We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. A year and a
3: half ago... I was working in our small hometown. Uh, I was working in our hospital. It was one of my first jobs as a registered nurse. And I went in for a night shift one night. And at about 6.45 in the morning, we got a call, an ambulance call, for two victims of a motor vehicle collision. One of the patients uh, was in critical condition. Uh, I had never actually worked in the emergency department before, so I was pretty nervous. I started to do my head-to-toe assessment, just like I learned in school. At the top, you know, the patient had obviously suffered trauma to the head and was unrecognizable. Their head and and facial features were quite swollen. Um, And as I inched my way down, I kind of saw, you know, there was quite a bit of lung trauma. There was... Uh, several breaks to the leg breaks to the hand and as I was kind of going over all the injuries I started to feel like there was something that I was missing there was something obvious that I was missing but I just couldn't seem to put my finger on it and I kind of took a step back and and realized that I recognized the clothing that the patient was wearing and That's when I realized that it was my fiancé. It was Jason. It just seemed so surreal. We'd been engaged for about a year, and we were two and a half months shy of our wedding. And now here he was in a hospital bed fighting for his life. What the police were able to gather was that uh, there had been a dirt bike collision. Uh, Jason had a traumatic brain injury and we ended up having to be airlifted to a bigger hospital because of the severity of his injuries. When we first spoke with the doctor, All I kept thinking about was, you know, I I hope he's well enough for the wedding. I hope his recovery doesn't take too much time. And then after speaking with the doctor, uh, they told us that he was in a coma. And that was when I kind of realized the wedding wasn't going to happen. The life that we had was gone. And so every day we... We went to visit him and we waited. And uh, the doctors sat us down and they told us, you know, he's not making a lot of improvement. You know, if this continues on for the next couple months, then we would strongly suggest that you consider either putting him in an institution or ending his life. And I had to ask what ending his life looked like. And they told me that, you know, they would stop his feeds. Essentially, he would starve to death. Uh, But I felt like he he hadn't even been given enough time to get better for us to, to be discussing these options. His brain still had a lot of swelling, and we wouldn't be able to tell what kind of recovery he could make until the swelling was down. So I... I went against the doctor's advice, which soon also became the nurse's advice and the chaplain's advice and uh, everybody's advice as they kind of pressured me to make that decision. So I spent the next few weeks at his bedside and I, I watched him like a hawk, hoping for some kind of movement, His hand on the right side was in a cast, but the tips of his fingers were out and and they were starting to move a little bit. And after two and a half weeks, he finally opened his eyes. We were like, oh my God, like he's awake, like everything's going to be fine now. But although he had opened his eyes, it was a blank stare, just a completely blank stare. It was just, it was kind of a sinking feeling in the in the pit of your stomach. It's, it was like he was, his eyes were open, but he wasn't awake. So what now? And it wasn't until one night in the ICU when he started making kissing motions at me that we kind of realized, you know, he knows who we are. Like he chose to, to do that with me. He was starting to have little functions come back. And so we kind of developed our own way of communicating with him where, you know, he'd blink once for yes, blink twice for no. A month and a half after the accident, uh, we started to near the point where um, we had our wedding day planned and we decided that we were going to get married anyway. It was really hard because a lot of people didn't really understand. They didn't really think that he had the ability to make that decision. Um, When there's a lot of people in the room, it would overwhelm him and he would completely just zone out. He he wouldn't participate in conversation. And so I was really the only one who could really see how far he'd come and who, who really knew how much he wanted this. And You know, I I watched him during the day, practicing to put the ring on my finger and practicing to say I do. And I saw the effort he put into it. And I I, I knew that he knew what he wanted and he was willing to work for it. And so when the day of our wedding came, uh, we got married in the hospital uh, in a little chapel downstairs and when the time came for him to say I do he said it really loud and clear and everybody in the room just kind of sighed with relief because it was everybody's way of knowing like yeah like this is really what he wants
2: you gotta pick somebody <laughs> you'll do
3: <laughs> <laughs> king. I think I picked a keeper of course Jason and I met in pre-kindergarten. Uh, we started dating when we were 17, when we were in high school. In You're a loser. Oh, mm-hmm. I was a loser? I don't think so. Yeah,
1: I'm a big loser. <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: you have anything nice to add?
1: Yeah, I love you. <laughs> mm.
3: A few months after our wedding, uh, Jason was finally able to come home. And he had to kind of relearn how to move pretty much his entire body
2: at first when i first came home
3: it felt pretty good but then again it was just never the same i
2: had to learn everything over again like walk eat or even breathing everything because with a brain injury it's like you're starting from scratch
3: being a caregiver is a is a full time job and the pressure of having to take care of another person's life in all aspects, health, finance, everything, as well as your own, is it's a burden. It's it's a it's a large burden. I find a lot of our friends and family and they've been amazing, but they think that because the trauma is over, he's alive, it's fine, everything is fine. But everything is not fine. Like every single aspect of our life has changed. I'll order my groceries online so that they're delivered because I'm, I'm so exhausted. And sometimes I'll talk to my family and they'll joke, well, it must be nice to have your groceries delivered. And I kind of laugh along with it. But at the back of my head, I'm like, you know, if we were to go to the grocery store, you know, that's I have to get him dressed and then have to... Hold him while he's walking into the grocery store for his balance and he's impulsive so we better watch what he puts in the cart and you know what i mean he has no concept of money and and so it's it, one little thing becomes a huge thing
2: the hardest part about is me not being able to suffer myself if you want to know how it feels to not be able to do stuff for yourself sometimes just think about being an infant and not being able to do nothing Eventually it does get better, but right now it's really hard.
3: Mm. It's hard for me to not be a mom to him. Like I don't want to nag him and I don't want to tell him what to do, but unfortunately one of the things he needs is he needs a lot of cueing. he needs a lot of reminders, and so it's kind of trying to find that balance between being a partner, not pushing too much, and pushing the way I need to without feeling like I'm nagging him all the time and i mean we spend a lot of time together the average couple goes to work every day so when they sit down to dinner they have stories to tell they have things to say whereas we spend almost all of our time together and you know that's not healthy you're saying you like me i love you uh, just not on my hip every second mm, every part why of <laughs> You know, after a brain injury, you're not the same person you were before and you'll never be that person again. That person is gone. He has different tastes in food. He has different interests. He has different the way he talks, the things he says, everything is different. You kind of have to you have to get to know a whole new person. You have to kind of fall in love with a whole new person. I mean, now he, when he sits, you know, and plays Xbox for hours at a time, I get sad because I know the person he used to be never would have done that. But then I have to remind myself, like, he doesn't mind. A socializing event is exhausting and he's got to talk and he's got to, you know what I mean? And it's It's a lot of effort for him. And so I am... I have to remind myself that he's changed and, you know, and and adapt to the new person. And so it's still a process for me, but...
2: I'm perfect.
3: Oh, yes, you are. You're perfect. Mm
2: -hmm. I know.
3: (laughs) For me, the commitment started when he proposed and he asked me to be his wife. It's telling another person that you're going to be there no matter what. And no matter what is a pretty big thing to say. And so when we made the decision to get married it was truly because um we were in it in sickness and in health and you know, we weren't just uttering the words
2: That's so deep. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do you have a comment? What she said <laughs> uh, You don't have any thoughts? Um I'm just happy you stayed you could like had a go on bike.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you. You're amazing, obviously. I'm sorry for all this. It's not your fault. It is. My bad. <laughs> it's not your bad. Mm. Little by little, we're starting to kind of prepare ourselves for the future because uh, we're going to have a baby. Which is going to be a very unique experience for us. I'm going to be taking care of Jason and I'm also two going to kids. be. Yeah, it's going to be like having um, two children a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's a little extra work for me, nothing's been easy for us since the accident. And so, what's a little extra chaos? <laughs> <sighs> what do you think about when you think about the future? I just try to stay alive. You're just going to try to stay alive? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>
2: So you have to go it again.
1: <laughs> Love Me is produced by Mirabert Lintonik and Crystal Duhane. On today's show, you heard juror number 12, Lee Weinstein, and Melissa and Jason Jurovic. Melissa offers coaching services for caregivers, Find out more and see photos of Melissa and Jason at cbc.ca slash loveme. Today's episode featured music by James Irwin. Original theme music by Tim Kingsbury. Tim is a member of Arcade Fire and Sam Patch, whose debut album will be coming out soon. Scoring music by Murray Lightburn. Murray is a member of The Dears, whose music can be found at thedeers.org. A huge, huge thank you to both Tim and Murray for your great music this season. We cannot get it out of our heads, and we mean that in the very best way. And thank you all so much for listening. This was our final episode of the season, and so we especially want to thank everyone who shared their stories with us. Last but not least, thank you to Araf Narani and Leslie Merklinger for all their help along the way. You can hear the whole first season of Love Me by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or at cbc.ca loveme, where you can also find ways to stay in touch with us. Until next time, I'm Lou Olkowski.